Thank you for downloading this episode of the Zeros podcast. This particular episode has an accompanying gallery in both Instagram and Facebook. So please go now to at Zeros podcast on either of those platforms to see the gallery, which will help you enjoy this episode. By the way, I spell Zeros, Z-E-R-O-E-S. So that's at Zeros podcast with an O-E-S at the end of Zeros. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to The Zeros and before you ask, no, we are not The Zeros. The Zeros are a set of years, specifically the years of the 20th and 21st centuries that end in zero. What we are trying to explore here is, do those years, 1920, 30, 90, 2000, do they belong to the decade just gone or the decade to come? And in this series, the first series, we are looking at 1990 and the question we're asking is... Is the cinema, TV, music and fashion and art of 1990, is it more like the 1980s or the 1990s? My name is Niall and I know nothing, so I've gathered together people who know lots of things and I'm going to get them now to introduce themselves. First of all, Murren, tell us what you are going to be exploring in this series. Hello, yeah, I'm Murren and I'm going to be looking at fashion, art, architecture, anything kind of visual design, creative stuff like that. That would be me. And Susie. Well, Niall is telling me that I'm an expert of 20th century television, and he also pawned American politics and current affairs onto me. So, just as a little aside later on in the series. So, Mick, why don't you tell us a bit about what you're going to be exploring in this series? I'm Mick Duffy. I write about and teach film. And I will be pondering 1990 from a cinematic perspective. And Connor, tell us a bit about your expertise. I'm Connor, and I'm past the age of even claiming to be a geriatric millennial. But as a pediatric Gen Xer, I'll be sharing some thoughts about the music of 1990. As I remember it, along with some pop, pop culture hindsight. So was 1990 all about stadium rockers and pop legends or a load of new icons? Okay, so all very interesting, but I think if we're going to get our heads around a particular decade, we should start with how it looks. So, Murren, I think we're going to start with the fashion, the art, the architecture, the look of 1990 and of the 80s and 90s. So, uh, if you don't mind, shall we get going? Yeah, sounds good. Let's do it. So, Murren, let us get on with this. Let us find out what we can say about 1990 that is 80s-ish and what about 1990 is 90s-ish. The first thing I have to say is in every episode of The Zeros, we are going to do a bit of a thought experiment, a time travel thought experiment. And this is our first go at it. You are our time traveler. I'm going to attempt to be a time traveler. Okay. (laughs) Or or you're more of a time guide. You're, You're guiding our perhapless time traveler through their confusion. So... Let me set the scene. It's 1986 and we're in a kind of like medium-sized town. Could be in North America, could be in Ireland or Britain. It's a pretty standard place and we're in the kind of town's kind of nightclub come disco. We've got a teenage boy and girl. They are 
pretty much the, the most conventionally trendy kids in that club. First of all, give me an idea about what they're wearing. What do they look like? Okay, so if I'm going back to 1986 and I'm the most popular guy and girl in school and I'm heading out for a night on the town, I think the goal of my outfit probably going to be excess. I'm not quite Princess Diana in her wedding dress now, but I'm thinking colour. I want puffy hair. You know, you want to be able to maintain your social status uh, in the popular clique. And if you caught in anything else, you're, you know, you're social suicide. So I'm thinking Claire Standish in The Breakfast Club from 1985. Something kind of girly, pink, nice kind of puffy hair as well. And I know Demi Moore in the uh, St. Elmo's Fire was also another one. And obviously you have to, you know, you idolise Madonna at this stage. So the look I want to go for for the girls is big puffy hair tied up in a ponytail, maybe a side ponytail. Maybe you've got a scrunchie on, you've got a headscarf. You've packed on the blue eyeshadow. Maybe you've got red lipstick on, pink lipstick. You might be wearing acid wash denim jackets over, you know, lacy tops. You've got beaded bracelets up to your elbows. You might be wearing fishnet stockings, gloves, pearl necklaces galore. You know, you might be with your friends who've spent two hours backcombing their hair or crimping their hair. You have another friend in like an oversized blazer, you know, with the shoulder pads that are going to take someone's eye out. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and you're hoping you're hoping you're gonna see you know who tonight at the party he's probably into his designer brands um and he's got a nice crisp shirt on but he just looks slick you can you know from a mile away he just he looks good he's got the hair slicked back so i think that's what he'd be looking like and when you get down to the club there might be a couple of different crowds outside you might have your metal heads you're gonna avoid them you don't want to be seen with them They're usually seen hanging out at the arcade, browsing record stores, but they're usually in big denim jackets, you know, with sheepskin collars, studded leather jackets, band tees. And of course, they can't be seen without their long, mullety hairstyles. Yeah. You might have a couple of hip hop revelers out that night in parachute pants, some bomber jackets, colourful tracksuits, and a few new romantic stragglers with their quips makeup and poet shirts oh wow um, but i'm thinking that's wow. the kind of crowd that's showing up it depends on what kind of music is being played that night ah who knows but who he- knows here's what happens to our couple they yeah. both get up and they both go to the loo and by the okay. freakiest of freak time storms the cubicle that he goes into and the cubicle she goes into are time warps and they step out of the toilets at the same time in the same club, but now it's 1994. What do they see when they step out back into that club from the toilets? I think they see a lot of plaid and tartan at this party. I think both guys and girls are wearing plaid flannel overshirts in an array of colours. Usually, you know, in the 80s, you're used to seeing kind of plaid blazers and skirts. I'm thinking the Heathers movie and they're all in there very preppy kind of private school uniforms. You're wondering what's with all of the ripped jeans? Who let all of the punks in? The metalheads? Why are there so many? But they look a bit different. The mullets are gone. Their hair is kind of all grown out, shoulder length. It's all the same. The girls, you know, there's a couple in their plaid flannel overshirts. There's a lot of girls in mini dresses and skirts and these slip dresses with spaghetti straps and tight bodycon skirts. There's no frills, there's no shoulder pads, there's no big poofy hair, there's no brightly coloured lipstick in sight. And you're wondering, why am I the only one with 
blue eyeshadow and red lipstick on, I would feel a bit overdressed. You might have a couple of more, you know, you recognize the hip hop crowd in the corner. There's logos everywhere. You can recognize some Adidas stripe. There's a lot of baggy jeans. There's a lot of sneakers and T-shirts with smiley faces. <laughs> so when you span that eight year period, that was mm-hmm. four years either side of 1990. We've seen a, like just a revolutionary change in Definitely. style yeah. and, and outfits and and just that that whole big hair big shoulders look completely sep- swept away but also mm-hmm. it sounds to me like the the color palette has been massively muted as well definitely yeah there's no kind of there's a couple of neon colors maybe with the ravers but you know you don't have these bright colors especially with the makeup it's definitely more muted, more natural. The colours of clothes, I mean, the brightest things you're going to be getting really are the tie-dye and the, the tartan and the plaid. But a lot of the dresses are just black and red. Yeah. You're kind of feeling overdressed. You look very bright. <laughs> From a, an orientation point of view, if it wasn't for that bleepy computer music and if it wasn't for that one anchor you have that the hip-hop style is somewhat recognizable from where it was in 86 Mm -hmm. you'd almost think the time warp had taken you back in time to the 70s almost yeah definitely (laughs) so let's double back and take me back to january of 1990 and tell me about the first edition of the ultimate fashion bible vogue magazine january 1990 yeah this is british the british vogue cover for january 1990 so i thought we'd start with mainstream fashion kind of commercial styles right at the beginning so we have naomi campbell linda evangelista tatiana Petit, christy turlington and cindy crawford all on the cover and they've been shot by peter Lindbergh. so this kind of marks a change at the time there was a clear distinction between the models you were seeing on the runways and the models you were seeing in commercial print media like in magazines but throughout the 80s a lot of the same models were starting to appear on the covers and kind of building their presence i read somewhere that you know vogue's editor liz tilburis asked peter Lindbergh to photograph the new woman of the 90s once they knew you know ahead of time they were shooting for the January cover and Peter said that he couldn't do just one woman the idea of beauty had broadened and it couldn't be summed up with either a blonde blue-eyed girl or a sexy brunette so he ends up going for these five ladies who become the big five the big five supermodels now these were these five models along with a couple of others had already been building a presence within the high fashion industry throughout the mid to late 80s so you know you had in uh, 1986, Christy Turlington in October, she appeared on the British Vogue cover. You had Tatiana Patitz in November 1989. Cindy Crawford appeared on Vogue in 1987 in January. And then 1988, you had Linda Evangelista again. But these models were starting to break down the distinction between those you saw on the runway and those you saw in commercial print. And each of these mediums, I suppose, required different qualities to be showcased in order to sell products. So On the one hand, you had haute couture, and that favoured this really tall, long-limbed, thin, kind of a mannequin that would showcase the cut and movement as they walked, you know, of the garments as they walked down the runway. And then on the other side, stuff like Vogue and any kind of magazine or makeup campaigns, those kind of things, they needed a more accessible look to sell products to, you know, a younger, wider audience. So they wanted more of a girl-next-door look 
with, you know, women with radiant smiles and clear skin. They looked down to earth. But what was so special about the five ladies we see here on the Vogue cover is they were kind of able to do both. They had this innate, innate like ability to fulfill both of those roles perfectly. I think this was probably in part, you know, thanks to their natural beauty, genetics, basically. So what stood to them was that they still look good when their makeup is taken away. They're not wearing that much makeup in the Vogue cover but they still look stunning. They have these big wide smiles, big eyes, big hair. You know, they're nice to look at. They have a classic beauty, but at the same time, they're down to earth. Once you strip away the very big 80s hair and like the bright makeup, they're still stunning. They're like goddesses. And it's those Amazonian features as well that's really favoured by Haute Couture. You know, they're really tall. They're thin. They're very like slim proportions, but they still have their feminine curves, feminine features. So they fit very well into, you know, a runway look. But I think another side to it is as well that individuality as they became more and more favoured by fashion magazines and designers and, you know, different companies. And as modelling kind of became a full time career, it was kind of natural that they were able to cultivate a personality. I think they were given the space to do that. It sold products, sold clothes much better. But they had this freedom that was usually reserved for like movie stars and pop stars. And they start moving in with those crowds as well. But I know Cindy Crawford was saying about this photo that they weren't photographed with a ton of hair and makeup. They were quite undone. I mean, undone to a certain extent. They're still on a photo shoot. But they said she was saying coming out of the 80s, it was all about big hair. And this felt refreshing and new. All they're really wearing are these bodysuits with Levi's. So it is stripped down compared to a lot of the things that have gone before. A lot of the Vogue covers that had gone before those portraits with the woman up close and the big hair and the makeup and... You see a little bit of the outfit, but these women are further back and I don't know, they just, they're very beautiful to look at. Yes. No, there's no doubt about that. But I mean, the word that sort of strikes me as you, you describe a lot is, is minimalism. One thing you could never accuse the 80s of in any respect was minimalism, be that TV, cinema or fashion. Look at the, the 10 cheekbones on that cover. Yeah. You know, th these are people with exceptional bone structure. Yeah, enviable. And that permits the minimalism. And and I, su I suspect that there was actually a huge amount of skill in the makeup artist to have the bravery to to take that sudden shift and yeah. to, to be able to say, I don't need to do much here. That That's the beginning is of a very 90s ideal as I suppose, you know, from a commercial perspective marketing across the world of popular culture seeks to get ahead of defining a new decade it's just this perfect you know it's this perfect beauty they just everything about them is just it's the this amazonian ideal where they, everything is perfect i mean certainly what, what i remember is suddenly models a lot more models were household names than i remember in the 80s now obviously young boy for most of the 80s but yeah it was definitely yeah it was definitely a kind of a watershed moment and I think what kind of catapulted them to that household name then as well as the Freedom 90 music video by George you know by George Michael so he had seen the British Vogue cover and actually requested them to lip sync a verse each in the in his music video in place of him he didn't actually want to appear in the video at all and Cindy Crawford had said she had kind of referenced MTV had changed 
music in the way that you know it was important what your your what your appearance was like it was important how musicians looked so in that way the video for freedom 90 had a bit of dark humor to it because it was saying you now have to be beautiful to sell music too so he takes five of the most beautiful women and he plants them into the music video directed by david fincher and it really just highlights how much this kind of beauty is going to sell products not just makeup and clothes but it goes on to music as well and throughout that music video you can tell they're trying to emphasize the individuality of the models and their personalities through wardrobe and makeup carol brown who actually worked as a makeup artist on the shoot was saying it was all about bringing out their personalities so cindy was the sexy one christy was the cool classic one and linda was the chameleon who could do anything and linda was chameleon not just in terms of her modeling but her hair just constantly changed and she could rock any haircut, any hair colour. Camilla Nickerson then, who was a stylist, had veered towards an undone beauty, similar to what you'd see on the British Vogue cover. They were moving away from that 80s excess and they wanted the girls to look a little undone. And you can see that even in the wardrobe choices. So Linda Evangelista is just wearing a big black sweater. That is all she's kind of wearing. I think the most they spent on wardrobe was the 60 feet long linen sheet that Christy is dressed in I think Cindy's just naked <laughs> so there wasn't a lot of money being spent on it again it's this nat their natural beauty their classic good looks is what makes the video you don't have to do a lot with them no so that it's the minimalist it's starting to become the fashion is definitely becoming more minimalist as is the makeup because the women I suppose they're they're breaking down the excess in makeup and wardrobe but it, at the same time they're still putting that kind of beauty on a pedestal it's not as achievable as they're making it look again you do have to have the good genetics and the <laughs> tall frame to be able to look like that but it's interesting then by 1991 all five of those models walk down the runway for Gianni Versace for his fall runway collection so they're appearing in these cocktail dresses this is halfway I think halfway through the show they're in these beautiful red, black and yellow cocktail dresses. And they're again walking down the runway and they're lip syncing to Freedom 90 as they go. So it just shows you the associations between the fashion world and music is just heightening this new, I suppose, approach to fashion and beauty and makeup. And I think what, what's an interesting parallel there is the song itself is George Michael rejecting his own 80s. And, and it's interesting in choosing not to be the visual center of that video. He's saying, I'm sick of being the pretty boy. So I'm not even going to yeah. be in this video at all. Does his jacket catch fire? He sets fire to the jacket that he wore in the Faith video. And post-Wham 80s, George Michael is like very, very sexualized and heteronormatively sexualized icon. You know, he's like a really mm -hmm. like ridiculously handsome man who at this point yeah. was really struggling to stay in the closet in a, in a, in a oppressively homophobic society where like British tabloids were just printing hatred against the LGBT community. And pop at that time was consuming any young, attractive person and not recognising, not recognising at all just how supremely talented he was as a songwriter, as a singer. It was all about him as the kind of youthful heartthrob. So that's very interesting. He says, well, fuck it. I'm not even going to be in this video at all. If we're looking for those watersheds and, and mm -hmm. we're seeing here these amazingly beautiful women, very unadorned, almost in one case, literally, fashion 
stepping sort of very cleverly and very skillfully stepping into the background of the picture and George Michael saying, and I'm done with 80s George Michael. So it's, it's a real, like it, it was so fucking iconic because, you know, it's a great, great pop song. One of the truly great pop songs. And well, you know, we, we've seen what David Fincher is now capable of, but it, it's so funny to think of him, you know, directing Madonna and George Michael videos as he was back then that you can see there's so much skill and talent going on there and for these women it's just simply a matter of letting the bones shine yeah and i think for both george michaels and these the big five they were able to from the 80s setting that foundation for success that by 1990 they're able to turn their backs on ways things were done in fashion george michaels can choose now because he's had the success and the fame and that status he can choose now to place these models in his music videos and i don't know it's revolutionary almost i suppose it is revolutionary let's now go to the absolute other end of the spectrum and let's look at two aspects of urban working class fashion, which I think are very, very connected together. One would be American black hip hop fashion, and the other would be what we would call baggy, so Northern English. And there's always been a great connection between African-American culture and and the North of England. Talk to me about where hip hop fashion and, and black street urban fashion is in 1990. Yeah, so we've talked a bit about haute couture fashion, haute couture fashion, I should say. But it's interesting, yeah, to turn to street style, particularly in New York, which was rooted in black youth culture and music. So that kind of, I suppose, came into its own in the late 80s. And I suppose the look there was really defined by the musical artists that were around at the time. So you had, you know, Run DMC in this kind of edgy look of gold jewellery, black leather, fedoras. Um, you have them coming out in 1986 with my Adidas or my Adidas. They really like their branding. Their sportswear was really central piece of clothing in your wardrobe if you are to be kind of accepted as an authority in hip hop. And this develops as well out of B-boys and fly girls. So these are the ones, these are the people dancing or emceeing or DJing at the time. Mainly, you know, the B-boys, the B comes from breakdancing. So they're the ones dancing out on the street it's very competitive and in that way hip-hop the fashion kind of revolves around this aspirational aspect to it you want to look your best you want to be successful you want to reach new heights and the clothes then had to be practical if you're going to be dancing you don't want your clothes getting caught Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want to be getting tripped up by your flares, that kind of thing. Yes. So out with the flares, <laughs> you want baggy kind of sportswear that are going to suit you when you're, I suppose, performing very strenuous movements. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. If you're spinning around in your head, that kind of thing. And the kind of look that would drive that was oversized, it was very baggy, athletic, but you had to look good. You know, you wanted your gold jewellery, your big chains. You had public enemy as well. And that'd be more of a militant look. There's a lot of camouflage, white trainers. And again, this was all set against quite a lot of tension at the time, a lot of racial discrimination, poverty. You had four days of LA riots that resulted in about 55 people being killed and about 2,000 people injured and a lot of devastation caused to buildings. And this was after altercations with police officers. When we go back to what you were saying about Public Enemy looking very deliberately military in some other look, harking back to the Black Panthers 
and that sort of resurgence of black consciousness and of political organizing and and manifestation that that comes in the early 90s and that hip-hop from the late 80s will play such an important part of that and and with that is the streetwear as an expression of that new kind of urban black pride yeah there was a lot of yeah a lot of pride in you know their african in african heritage at the time and it wasn't just the musical artists who were driving the these trends you had black designers like willy wear and dapper dan kind of making a name for themselves as fashion designers and then collaborating with musical artists like LL Cool J, Tribe Called Quest, Queen Latifah, Salt and Pepper, like really working together to, I guess, showcase the best of hip hop culture and really, I guess, experimenting and pushing fashion to another level. I mean, you had Dapper Dan, I suppose, selling kind of knockoffs of designer brands and you had other, I suppose you had Willy Wear as well, they were, I guess they they were just making a name for themselves, and it was all it was all yeah it was all coming together fashion and design and music and again those those four elements of DJing, MCing, and graffiti and breakdancing all coming together to form this hip hop culture. It was already forming throughout the seventies and eighties, but it was really in the nineties they begin to hit the mainstream. And I think what really helped as well was, you know, the platform of TV for hip hop fashion, just being able to showcase that fashion in a new way. I think in then in September 1990, when the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air debuted, you really see one of the biggest fashion moments of the year. One of my favourite fashion moments <laughs> of the 90s is the opening credits to Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Again, you know, it epitomises those core elements of hip hop. We've got the music and the rapping. We've got a bit of dancing, the sportswear and the street art in the opening credits. An interesting story to that is for the title credits, it was a man called Wendell Johnson who was hired as a graphic designer. And he'd actually been requested to make a graffiti based logo for the show. So you've got the graffiti style of Fresh Prince contrasted against the more elegant font in Bel Air. And it's, I guess it's it's juxtaposing, you know, Will Smith moving from West Philadelphia to, uh, you know, the West Coast. So it's just a fun idea that they've brought together. And as well, you know, the bright pink and the, the lime green kind of ties into the clothes he is wearing in the opening scene. So he's got a striped neon yellow and green t-shirt. He's got his neon green hat his blue shorts, and of course, his beloved Nike Air Jordans. And he's <laughs> he's kind of seen throughout the series then wearing these really bright, colourful sportswear, really bold prints. I know you've mentioned your love of shell suits. <laughs> <laughs> yes. From the 90s, he's wearing his shell suits, his denim jackets, his throwback jerseys. I could go on. It's just a lot of oversized sportswear. And in some ways, it's an ode to the 80s, you know, the bright colours he is wearing. Yes. You can see as time goes on, not to say he it becomes a bit more muted, but definitely matures in his style. But I think the one thing that stays very consistent pretty much throughout the whole thing was his love of the Air Jordans, um, the Nike Air Jordans. Those were originally released exclusively with a Mike, with Michael Jordans. It was a, a celebrity endorsement and they were released in 1985. But you had the Air Jordans again that were released in 1990, uh, designed by Tinker Hatfield. And they were kind of a new look. And they were very, very popular in the Fresh Prince. So he wears metallic silver, grape, fire red. And there's actually a website dedicated to all the shoes that Will Smith wears throughout Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, which I thought was very interesting. 
uh, if anyone wants to check it out we'll put um in the description we'll put the website for the various sneakers of uh, the fresh prince of bel-air because i guess people are going to love seeing that and yeah i just love the show i just love the the fashion that they managed to showcase and you know will smith as well does his best to showcase a lot of the up-and-coming black owned and black designer brands like cross colors it's a big one he was able to get his hands on a couple of pieces and he wears it throughout the show they, yeah, they were really important designers at the time. They were just founded by Carl Jones and TJ Walker in 1989, I believe. They were originally from the West Coast, but they actually traveled to New York to do research at the beginning. And that's when they discovered, you know, the majority of black kids were wearing oversized um, clothing. So when they came back, they began, you know, producing their own oversized kind of jeans. And they based their primary color palette on kind of Jamaican flags. So you've got the yellow, the red and the green that makes up most of the the main colors they've got these really positive you know messages and slogans like love sees no color educate to illuminate their whole mission statement was clothing without prejudice and you know they were really successful in what they did they really spoke to their audience um they made over 100 million dollars in sales in the first i think four years of their existence and their business actually gave rise to designers like april walker you had carl canny as well um, you had other brands like FUBU, For Us, By Us, that were founded by Damon John, Keith Perrin, J. Alexander Martin and Carl Brown, again in 1989. 1989 was a big year. And again, they were really pushing black empowerment and they were, you know, getting more celebrity endorsements like from the likes of LL Cool J. Uh, LL Cool J appears in an ad for The Gap and he actually manages to sneak in FUBU. During the ad, he just For Us, By Us, he gets it in. They don't notice. They get free publicity. It's great. Um, and FUBU, they, at their peak, they they earned over about $350 million in sales. And it kind of just snowballs from there. You know, you've got Jamie Foxx in Cross Colours, TLC in Cross Colours. Again, it's going back to that aspirational element of hip-hop with the gold jewellery and the logos. It's transplanting onto more luxury brands. Already you had Nike and Reebok and Adidas being closely affiliated with street styles. You know, the logos worn all over tracksuits and like trainers. Um, so they're being worn by musical performers and sports stars alike. But then you had, you know, your workwear brands like Dickies and Carhartt. And going beyond that, then I suppose it comes back full circle to mainstream fashion. And you had the likes of Sean Combs setting up his own line in 1998, Sean John. And that's kind of marketing his own sportswear. He's featuring all black models hiring black designers. He appears um, in a Vogue editorial in October 1999 with Kate Moss. And it just shows you how far they're coming from. I mean, I think FUBU and FUBU and Cross Colours, the guys starting out with these ideas, that's all they kind of were at the time. And they were kind of, I guess, hustling on the side, you know, selling these clothes out of their, you know, the trunks of their cars. And they're making, you know, three hundred fifty million dollars from from your the car boot. That's how, like they make these empires for themselves, and it's all through this collaboration with musical artists, your Magic Johnson as well. It's all coming together, and kids again seeing cross colors on Fresh Prince of Bel Air on their favorite favorite musical artists like TLC and like Salt and Pepper. Like it really just starts a revolution, and the fashion industry has to come round to that. You can't just be showing those five, well, four very white models. And you had your Naomi Campbell as well, but she is outnumbered on that British Vogue cover in January. 
1990. And it just comes full circle then when you have the likes of Sean Combs showcasing black fashion, what worn by, you know, black models. It's amazing to see. I just love like in Fresh Prince, he's just so himself. It's just a lovely expression. I don't know. It's so fun and playful. Stands the test of time as well. I mean, I think they've released a new Fresh Prince of Bel-Air clothing line. So it's, it's stood the test of time. And and now it's it's on rotation on Sky TV as much as France. It it is as enduring a sort of nineties icon as France. I want to go back to something you 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 said there earlier about the hip hop clothing being very important to facilitate dancing. And I want to move on to the other big, very visible urban working class street based fashion movement that you can see in nineteen ninety if you're on this side of the Atlantic, and that is the baggy look associated with the Manchester music scene? Yeah, so towards the mid to late 80s, it was really an era of dance and club music and the club scene. Yeah, you had like Steve Coogan, I think, describing how music, drugs, dancing, the venue and the city all coming together in Manchester. You know, it was like Renaissance Florence with Hacienda as their cathedral. (laughs) So you had originally techno originating from Detroit, House in Chicago, Rave in London and Manchester, with all these new dance genre of music emerging. And I suppose clubbers made up their own style as they went along. I mean, trainers were probably a must. You wanted to be able to be, you know, you wanted to be comfortable while you were dancing. I think they did borrow a lot from the hip hop b-boys they saw. So t- like very baggy t-shirts and jeans, sweatshirts, hot pants, and um, mini dresses that you would have seen on um, Fly Girls. You wanted to be comfortable for dancing. Of course, you have your smiley face logo as well. So that was associated with MDMA. You want to be happy uh, and have the energy to dance, I suppose. I'm not yes. recommending, but <laughs> that's <laughs> no, just no. what happened. We're, yes, we're, we couldn't possibly comment. So yeah, you had as well in May and July in 1990, The Face magazine. Actually, in October and January, you had the Charlatans and the Stone Roses appearing on the cover of The Face. But in May and July 1990, you had a young, relatively unknown model, Kate Moss, appearing on oh, The Face. Yes. So yeah, You had Corinne Day organising that photo shoot and the theme was the third summer of love. And it was documenting this emerging subculture in Britain of soft drugs, fuzzy pop music and football uh, football thugs in flowers. (laughs) So you had music and drugs and football all coming together. But yeah, within, I suppose, the dance scene, you had all of these sub subcultures. You had like techno, you had cybergoths, you hmm. had the ravers, you had Madchester as well. So that would have been where the baggy sound originated with, you know, the Happy Mondays, uh, Stone Roses and Spiral Carpets. It was this love of dressing up and, you know, a love of music that came together and clubs really became the key venues to showcase the fashion you were wearing so you had your ravers, baggy, dresser and casual, and they be kind of they came became synonymous with this new movement. I I'll talk a bit about dresser casual. They're kind of interchangeable, but I suppose casual relates to the style emerging out of the south of England, and then dresser would have been the north of England. Okay, yeah. Um, and that was kind of a culture born around English football, sportswear and music. 
see a lot of uh, athleisure tracksuits and trainers but it was a bit more I think curated you had the likes of Sergio Tacchini tracksuits you had Fila you had Fred Perry Adidas of course was like mm-hmm. a really big one it's still around today you had Puma Lacoste Stone Island really making up their looks and when it came to rave I think it was kind of everything goes you'd have really colorful tie-dye clothing kind of psychedelic going back to the 1960s hippies you'd have your slogan t-shirts your like your oversized sunglasses your bucket hat whistles there's a great episode um of spaced i know that's kind of set in the 2000s they have a great episode where they go to a rave and i think anyone who wants to see what i think a a real rave was like definitely watch that episode it's really really (laughs) funny but they have the whistles it's, yeah, it's so interesting looking back on pictures from the like really early nineties, kind of late eighties as well. Just the things they were wearing, the bucket hats, the the logos, you know, the logo T shirts, the dungarees as well. Yeah, and you had your Manchester scene as well. I mean, the hacienda was probably the best place to see the kind of fashion that was going on, but all super baggy. And I've only come across this in my research was the Joe Bloggs jeans. Yes, really baggy. Really baggy, baggy jeans. I was shocked. But... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and again, you, you would have seen that then also in the hip hop scene, the, the, you know, the trousers around your arse, basically. I mean, I mean, there'd been such a long connection between the northwest of England and African-American music, you know, going back to beat music and then the northern soul movement. And this was just an extension of that. I mean, I remember seeing interviews with those original Chicago DJs talking about in 89, 90, getting on planes in Chicago where they were nobody and being the equivalent of the Beatles landing in New York when they got off the plane in Manchester because, you know, that's that's where those guys were superstars and it was because of the Hacienda. It was because of this long working class, white working class affinity in the northwest of England with black music, that that, that, that continuum and with that, a, a sort of very Manchester version of of that kind of baggy style that you would have had that you were describing from the B-Boys and from the, the, the sort of hip-hop movement. I know you wanted to see an old Gallagher with his bowl haircut. There you go. Well, it's more of a grown-out look. I'm not <laughs> sure how you would describe it. <laughs> it doesn't look like he's got the best hair for that big bowl mop it looks like it's too curly it's it's like again people can see this in the instagram feed if they look but it looks too it just doesn't look like it's sitting right whereas tim burgess always had great hair for a bowl cut that doesn't look right no wonder he started to basically cut it much shorter so at that point he is working as a roadie for the inspiral carpets is that right yeah so i think around may 1988 he meets the guitarist graham lambert at a stone roses show And that's where he auditions, I think, firstly to become a new vocalist, but he does not get the job. Um, And he becomes part of the road crew for about two years. I think he said it was like one of the best jobs he's ever had because there was no, the pressure of fame wasn't there. He just got up, did his job and went on the booze for the rest (laughs) of the day. (laughs) I mean, it's so funny. I'm looking at this photograph. It's clearly Noel Gallagher but he could not look less like the Brit pop king that he'll become. If you show me that photograph, I said, who's that? I go, that looks like a roadie for the Inspiral Carpets. Like, he just looks exactly right for that, for that job description. 
he is like rubbing shoulders with the kind of kings of that baggy indie dance kind of music yes that kind of rises to prominence in in manchester Manchester. um he's a massive fan of the stone roses you know he's friends with you know ian brown later on but i think he comes home then and you know from what he's seen on the road the kind of music i mean he's hanging out in the hacienda as well he's yes spending his nights there and i suppose the late 80s so he's kind of surrounded by that he's he obviously loves guitar music um, yes. He comes home then, and I think Liam Gallagher had already formed the band by that stage, and he was asked to be the manager. Noel was asked to be their manager, and he said, nope, I'm going to take over. <laughs> <laughs> so he becomes the songwriter, becomes like lead guitarist, that kind of thing. And they start making music. You know, by 1994, you've got Definitely Maybe. 1995, What's the Story, Morning Glory. Mm. I suppose the kind of fashion that is kind of goes along with Britpop, it's it's the casual style or the the dresser style. It's a bit of mod as well. They're looking it's back definitely to the sixties. Definitely mod, definitely. And it's funny because I mean, when I first saw, I never liked Oasis, and now looking back, I realise that I was just being a contrary dick when it comes to his first two albums. That the first album I thought, because like the the band I never liked and still don't like is the Stone Roses. And I never liked their style either. And I thought, who are these guys trying to be another Stone Roses? And it's interesting when you talk about the mod thing, how quickly they then shift to being all about the Beatles. And and to an extent also the jam. But yes, that that, that by then the clothes are tightening. You know, it's definitely not as baggy. They're definitely, they're into their brands. But it, I suppose the kind of, branding that they're wearing the kind of clothes that they are wearing they're slick um i know noel noel gallagher's massive fan of adidas you can, or adidas however you want to pronounce mm-hmm. it but i remember seeing an interview with him and ian brown they're kind of doing a campaign for adidas at the time and he's talking about growing up in the northwest you know manchester liverpool the kids growing up were looking to the footballers at the time they were all decked out in adidas and yes. growing up at school he was saying, you know, they always wore, you know, the shoes. He loves wearing Adidas shoes in particular. And he kind of references this shop, the underground, the underground market in Manchester. And the guys working there would go to Europe, bring back all of the football gear and the shoes. And he mentioned kind of the Dublin shoes as well. Oh, right. And they'd bring them back and sell them on. But he was also referencing as well, like they would kind of, the Manchester look was cheap. It was kind of going to the army and navy stores and kind of, getting the secondhand Levi's. They weren't the first hand. I mean, they were still classic brands, but they weren't the newest release. I don't know. I think that kind of follows them through, but it's definitely, it definitely is more curated and they're they're able to, I guess with money, you're able to pick out the brands you do want to wear, who you want to associate with. I mean, the big brands would have been Adidas, Puma again, Fila, Lacoste, Stone Island. They're kind of just, they're riding this wave, I suppose at the time. You have the election of Tony Blair and Britpop is dominating. You've got, you know, Britpop, you know, Blurver versus Oasis. Who's going to sell more albums? They appear in Vanity Fair in 1997. So you've got Liam Gallagher and Patsy Kensit on the front in the Union Jack. Yes. So it's that cool Britannia starts to kind of take over. We're straying very far away from 1990. And I want to bring us back to 1990 with the other very sort of successful writer of the baggy to Britpop pipeline that is Damon Alburn and Co. Because unlike 
Rodine O'Gallagher, Blur have a hit single in 1990, She's So High. And that is such a different Blur from the the Blur that will eventually become a very sort of dominant mainstay of Britpop and post-Britpop. And both musically and fashion-wise, they're just so baggy, even though they're a bunch of Southerners. Yeah, they're so baggy. I love the ball haircuts as well. <laughs> but yes, the baggy t-shirts, the, the penguin, isn't it the penguin t-shirt he's wearing in that music video? But he's definitely... Yeah, he definitely comes a long way in his fashion. It's definitely more, again, more curated, but, you know, you've got the Fred Perry. I think he's wearing a bit of, a couple of Doc Martin shoes as well. He's got the Harrington coats, and there's a great picture of him and Liam Gallagher. Liam Gallagher's decked out in Adidas. I think Damon Albarn's wearing Puma or something along those lines. Mm. You could just see the difference between the two. I think the main thing we need to say about the blur of 1990 versus the blur who will be the the more memorable blur is it tells you something about how quickly baggy dies and how baggy really is a fulcrum upon which the 80s turns into the 90s in british fashion and music but it is not enduring and and none of those bands we've been talking about or their look last that's i think what's interesting i mean in spiral carpets i'd say quite a large portion of the younger listeners to this podcast are going who in 1990 they were massive in britain like they were huge they were seen as very very central as important as stone roses or happy mondays they were as talked about and now you're going huh who what you know that and and yet they had such they were so archetypally baggy they all had the bowl haircut they just they looked so the part of that style and and so did blur at that point and and you know that album leisure and the songs from it they really do not feature much in people's remembering of blur or the notion that blur were there at that time so i think that's that's the most i think that's why it's so important to mention that video because it is not that and the um there's no other way video from 1991 both express the absolute peak of baggy and that is not i mean blur get lost in the wilderness for years after that you know that like the early 90s are a shit show for blur and when they come back with girls and boys and that whole sort of like mockney Chaz and dave shit that they do they're very much putting that baggy look behind them entirely and 1990 not much of that gets out in 1990 i think is is what to say and the stone roses certainly don't the stone roses come back in 94 is an absolute flop in every respect no one cares what they're wearing anymore no one cares what they're playing because they just spent five years listening to led zeppelin albums and god help us all can i double back again when we were talking about the uh magazine the face and and you mentioned her tell me about what a revolution kate moss was oh god where to start (laughs) yeah i mean she's definitely by the end of the 90s accepted into the high fashion world but she she definitely does mark a difference, you know, a change in the kind of beauty ideal and the fashion that we are seeing. You know, Melanie Ward, who helped to court, she was the stylist on the shoot and helped coordinate it. She called Kate Moss, you know, the zeitgeist of the 90s, personification of the youth quake. And I think most importantly was that she had no artifice or pretense. It was all very authentic. They were moving away from the maximalism, probably more radically than that you know, British Vogue 
yeah. cover. I think Kate Moss was only 16 at the time during that ju- July uh, 1990 edition. You had the the British Vogue magazine cover with the five Amazonian models, the big five supermodels. Still, they've stripped back the makeup and the wardrobe, but they still look very polished. Yes. So I think Kate Moss then was taking it, you know, a step further back again, or maybe a step beyond, and really just stripping everything back. Very natural hair. She had no makeup on. She was in very casual clothing, just a couple of like oversized sweaters at one point. She's wearing her Birkenstocks, but it's really, you can tell it's almost like a natural photo shoot as well. She's in the water, she's in the water at the sea. She's kind of laughing. She just looks very relaxed. It's not this posed image that you see, that you would kind of see on the front cover of a magazine. But she she was really important. One thing that strikes me is when we did our time travel thought experiment and the, the big hair and suddenly it's all long straight hair. And that's one thing I, I noticed is like the first thing you see of her is just this really late 60s, early 70s, long straight hair. Absolutely unstyled in any way. Yeah, definitely unstyled, yeah. You know, you would have begun to see that in more of the kind of folk goth movement of the sort of mid to late 80s that they would have begun to like Andrea Regan the lead singer of All About Eve would have had that long flowing hippie hair yeah and I think even though you know Kate Moss I think she becomes almost one of the big six at that you know by the mid 90s but yes I think even high fashion they're kind of taken aback there was an article in 1993 in Vogue in January. It has a feature called What's Modern Now by Susie Menkes. And she's talking about this minimalist style. She's asking about Calvin Klein's barely there dressing. What does it mean as a statement of modern times? Is, is it political or economic? That You know, there's a no to power dressing and the Wall Street dressing. Kind of theorising on 60s fashion and the hippie aesthetic that's influencing runway collections. And she's kind of... She asks in the article, you know, what is modern about the models that we're seeing? Not these gorgeous goddesses of the runways, the the so-called supermodels. They have been supplanted by the waif and the weirdo, Kate Moss and Kristen McMenemy, whose style reverberates back to the gawky 1960s. And you can just see, you know, people in high fashion, that kind of fashion industry are just struggling to put together where this is coming from. And why they're not there. I think they're just so out of touch with not these underground subcultures, I suppose these underground subcultures yeah. that are paving the way for how fashion and beauty should look. It's becoming much more democratic. You don't have to be an Amazonian goddess on the front of British Vogue. You can no. be quite normal looking. I mean, Kate Moss is still very beautiful, but she was definitely very different to what was being shown in fashion at that time. Let's rewind again back to our our zero year, back to 1990, and you found some really nice, very candid photographs of a very young, fresh-faced Kurt Cobain touring the uh, Bleach album, which had been released in 89, to not much acclaim. I mean, you know, the big album of that type in 1989 was Doolittle by by the Pixies so so nobody was talking about Nirvana really in 1990 and yet there they are on tour yeah sitting there with a crucifix in his van on tour yeah this was taken by JJ Gonson I think I'm pronouncing her name properly but yeah she she was on tour she was a young photographer at the time she was on tour with Nirvana 
and she really does capture these wonderful snapshots of life on tour for the young up-and-coming band. I thought this picture was interesting. I mean, it it's kind of, he, he is wearing this stereotypical grunge outfit. Yeah, for the for the listener, like he's sitting in a purple and lilac plaid shirt with like a, a grey t-shirt, long, straight, slightly dirty hair, his absolutely unmistakable Kurt Cobain stubble. He just looks so bloody young. He looks he so young yeah. to me now, like, and he didn't at the time because, you know, I was even younger than that. But yeah, you're right. It, it, he's he's wearing what will become the grunge uniform, isn't he? For sure, yeah. And I think what's important is, I suppose, to establish the context behind what he is wearing. This style really comes from the social, economic and geographical context of the Pacific Northwest. So from Washington State in particular, where the Seattle sound was beginning to emerge and the style that's going with that. I mean, when we think of grunge, you think of it as this anti-fashion statement. But really, at the time, it was all they could afford living in these kind of frugal economic circumstances. It was quite cold in Seattle, Washington as well. So you had a very basic uniform of lumberjack wear. You know, Washington State remains one of the world's leading lumber producers, which is why they've got this lumberjack work look. So you've got your T-shirts, your ripped jeans, your flannel, your plaid. You've got the chunky knit sweaters and cardigans, work boots, long johns, thermal tops. Hmm. And for women as well, who would have been frequenting these vintage shops, you would have gotten your kind of vintage dresses and skirts that probably came from the 60s and 70s. And I think really the only brands I could pinpoint were the Converse and the Vans and the Doc Martens and the Hmm. Timberland boots. And again, that was just that was workwear. It wasn't really fashionable at the time to be wearing those back in the 80s, I suppose. It was durable clothing. And it was, you know, it was a cold, hot climate. You needed the layers, hence the T-shirts, the flannel shirts and the heavy coats. I know Kirk Cobain references being quite poor growing up and, you know, barely having enough money when he was even going into these secondhand stores to buy things. And I think that just gives it this nonchalance and this disheveled look. Mm. But it's not really a choice. It's really all that they can afford at the time. Yes. Um, and it is this scarcity that's informing the look. They want to be comfortable when they're probably working and, you know, doing tough physical labour if they're working at the time. So really, yeah, it's it's a very utilitarian look and it's coming from the economic, geographical and social climate. You then can kind of move on as well to talk about the kind of grunge look as a means of subverting, of subverting uh, expectations. So yes. there's great pictures of Kurt Cobain in dresses uh, in 1990 while he's on tour. And very much those grungy granny dresses that the Kindle yeah. girls would have been wearing. Exactly, yeah. And I, I don't know, they make me happy when I see them in that. You know, he's <laughs> definitely defying any conventions at the time. You, a similar vein as well with the Riot Girls and anyone in part of the Kinderhorn movement where... They'd be wearing these baby doll dresses with the smudge makeup and they'd be tattered dresses and ripped tights and things like that. Sometimes with the Riot Girls as well, you've got these pigtails with more androgynous clothing. So I think, yeah, no, it's really interesting. And, you know, it's not the only anti-fashion, not anti-fashion statement, but it's not the only statement in fashion that's happening at the time. You've got Alexander McQueen and his like bumster jeans. You've got Madonna in her corset outfit during the Vogue tour. So, I mean, all of that is happening. There's kind of this climate of people wanting to subvert expectation through their their fashion choices. 
but unfortunately the the fashion world does get a whiff of what is happening in these kind of subcultures um the main one being i think mark jacobs so you know nirvana has gone mainstream already with smells like team spirit it becomes this kind of anthem in the 90s it actually knocks I think the album Nevermind knocks Michael Jackson from number one in the album charts <laughs> in 92. So they're really making way for the grunge sound, you know, the Seattle sound, like Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, Pearl Jam. And, you know, quickly after that, the grunge aesthetic becomes quite mainstream. I was listening to an interview from people in the 90s and there's one woman, one woman talking about how kids were being given flannel shirts for Christmas. Oh, it's just going back to people going into these thrift stores because it's all they could afford and getting them for Christmas instead like you can just see mm. is this disconnect already happening and I think as well they were saying Bloomingdale's and Macy's had opened grunge departments oh, as a geez. means of boosting stale, sales among kind of the younger commercial audience and you know you've got Mark Jacobs designing this grunge collection for Perry Ellis in 1993 He's got, well, basically what happens is he takes these plaid flannel shirts he finds for about $8 on St. Mark's Place in the East Village and he ships them to Italy to be remade in $1,000 a yard silk. He takes itchy wool caps he finds and he remakes them in cashmere and he's got models going down the runway in Converse and Birkenstock made from uh, Duchesse satin. So they're made from satin. So you can just see the disconnect that is already starting to happen from the actual origins of this. It's not even, I guess, a style choice, but it is an aesthetic. And I think the backlash to this appropriation and this glamorization of poverty, I suppose, is on both sides. So you've Courtney Love on one side saying Mark sent her and Kurt uh, Cobain his Perry Ellis grunge collection and they burnt it. (laughs) You had David Miner, a Seattle uh, concert-based promoter, who said... You know, he'd be going to thrift stores, not for a style thing, but because he had no money. And, you know, it just seemed dumb that they were having these runway shows of grunge wear. You had Jonathan Poneman in a New York Times interview saying it wasn't like someone said, let's all dress like lumberjacks and start Seattle chic. This stuff Mm. is durable. It's cheap and it's kind of timeless. It goes against the grain of the whole flashy aesthetic that existed in the 80s. And then you have the Mono Men. I think they were a band as well from... Seattle I want to say and they were talking about how mannequins and stores in long johns and shorts were going for $300 and they were saying we wear long johns here because it's fucking cold (laughs) (laughs) and you had as well again on the other side from high fashion they hated this collection I saw a great interview with Michael Gross he's a fashion editor for the New York magazine on CBS this morning in 1993 And he was asked by the journalist. So the journalist poses the question as, where does this stuff come from? And do they really expect people to wear any of this? And Michael Gross replies, in reference to this grunge look making an appearance on the runways, he goes, this is obviously an outflowing of a mass nervous breakdown on the part of the fashion business. And he references the 1987 (laughs) stock crash market as the reason for for the 80s fashion decade coming to an end. And then he accuses designers of performing desperate manoeuvres to get people's attention. So Anna Sway as well, she's another designer who kind of debuts this grunge look um, as part of her collection. And he says about her, so the interesting thing here is this is a 40-year-old designer trying to sell kids clothes to 40-year-olds. And he's actually quite nice about Marc Jacobs. He says, at best, the clothes are beautiful and non-specific and they'll appeal to luxury buyers. So... 
no one I think everyone's just turns their back on grunge and I was kind of listening to interviews with Kurt Cobain I think in 93 and he was already I think coming to that point naturally that he was kind of saying they were interested in new sounds and I don't know if they ever really considered themselves grunge it was kind of a you know a title placed upon them but very much by 93 94 it was definitely it wasn't cool no. <laughs> to be grunge I think New York Magazine as well had an article called Grunge 1992 to 1993 RIP. <laughs> and you also had Mark Jacobs being fired quite soon after <laughs> that. <laughs> just forgetting it's so completely wrong. I'm just sorry, as you talk about appropriation of, of poverty, I'm just thinking of Derelict in um, Zoolander as the perfect piss take of all of that. It's It's funny, yeah, when you say like, what actually was grunge? Because all the artists associated with it would deny they ever were. They were all very distinctly different. It's just to an untrained ear. It was like, hey, that that loud, loud heavy guitar bass music doesn't sound like Poison or Motley Crue. That must be grunge. And I, and I think actually the look and fashion dictated a lot of bands being deemed grunge. If the hair was long and straight, if the clothes were more, as you talk about sort of emerging from being poor you got called grunge and Alice in Chains and Soundgarden and Nirvana and Pearl Jam would all have run from that sort of description of themselves do you want to talk a bit about the art world at this time going on from grunge then I suppose a natural offshoot from that with Kate Moss as well becoming more mainstream was this heroin chic look and I read somewhere, I think it was Rebecca Arnold, she's a fashion theorist and historian, saying that heroin chic encapsulates a contemporary, the contemporary anxieties and desires, the myriad of identities that have developed in this fragmented period, the 90s, a nihilistic aesthetic that finds escape by retreating from conventional reality and conventional beauty. I think something similar can be said for the art that is emerging around uh-huh. that time. But to give kind of a context as well, you know, in the 1980s, New York City was really the epicenter of the art world. You know, people were creating art against the backdrop of the AIDS epidemic, crack epidemic, Cold War, racism, police brutality, LGBTQ plus issues, uh, economic inequality. I could go on. (laughs) You had, you know, the likes of Basquiat, you know, Jean-Michel Basquiat, um, who was a neo-expressionist street artist. You had Keith Haring, again, another kind of a figurative street artist, kind of abstract as well. And you had Jeff Koons, the king of kitsch. So he had some really fascinating sculptures. You had Marina Abramovich as well. She was a performance artist. In 1988, she collaborated with her partner Uli for a piece called Lovers, where they walked from either end of the Great Wall of China, I suppose to signal the end of their partnership. But you can kind of turn then to London in the 80s, not quite as renowned for the, the their art world. I mean, they still are. It's just New York was bu- like bustling with yes. all kinds of, you know, different artists at the time. But you had in 1984 the Turner Prize being founded as an annual prize for British visual artists named after J.M.W. Turner. And it was kind of it was set up in association with the Tate Gallery to promote developments in the art world and looking you know, at the winners of the Turner Prize in the 80s, you had the likes of Gilbert and George in 86, Richard Deakin in 87, Richard Long. But it was really painting and sculpture that dominates with, you know, elements of the abstract, conceptual and kind of installation art, pre- uh, you know, very prevalent throughout the nominations and winners. 
Yes. But in 1990, disaster strikes for the Turner Prize. So they've already been encountering these issues and kind of criticism from the public about how insular the award was. So they never really announced the nominees or even held exhibitions for the public. But in 1990, there's, yeah, yeah. Um, and in 1990, their sponsor, Drexel Burnham Lambert, went bankrupt and had to withdraw all financial support in February of that year. So the Turner Prize was really left in limbo. And there's a lot of uncertainty, I suppose, with, you know, what would happen next, what kind of recognition is even going to be given to British artists. But our hero at the time, Channel 4, steps in at the start of the decade. So in 91, they step in as the new sponsor for about a three-year deal, which includes a television programme dedicated to the artists and the prize-giving ceremony, the most important thing of all. There's a great documentary on this on YouTube, BBC Arts Night. So what has the Turner Prize ever done for us? (laughs) (laughs) So what Channel 4 was able to do was really just invent reinvent themselves reinvent the turner prize so tighter rules were kind of introduced so british artists under 50 were you know kind of that was that those were the nominees they doubled the prize from ten thousand pounds to twenty thousand pounds and there was a lot of media coverage they had documentaries they had extensive press and there was an exhibition now for the winners and the nominees to the public but around this time you had the young british artists coming to the fore they were kind of establishing themselves through student-led exhibitions during the 1980s. The majority, actually, of these students attended Goldsmiths College in London, which is a college that specialises in the arts, design, humanities and social science. Location in Newcross as well, southeast London, meant that students were kind of surrounded by a really vibrant art and music scene. And kind of tying into that, you know, the rave scene we were talking about that were happening in warehouses and factory spaces, these YBAs were actually turning to the same spaces to hold their exhibitions. So you had their very first exhibition in 1988, which was organised by a very young uh, Damien Hurst in an old uh-huh. fire station. Featured the work of 16 artists, his contemporaries um, in the school, and it received very little exposure. A lot of people like to think they'd been to it, but very few people actually showed up. Um, I think one of the attendees was Charles Satchi. So you can see the you know connections are already being made, networking mm-hmm. already in the art world, and. You know, as the 80s draw on and the 90s begin, they continue to set up these exhibitions. So you had the East Country Yard Show in 1990, Modern Medicine and Gambler in 1990, The Young British Artists, which was uh, held by Charles Saatchi in 92. You had Brilliant in 95 and Sensation in 1997, which I know you've mentioned you actually attended, which is very exciting. By absolute accident. I was in London for an afternoon before my flight and I had hours to kill and someone said, go to the Royal Academy, go to Sensation. For me, I had no idea where this came from and now you're giving me this context that actually that was a decade in the making. Yeah, yeah, it really was. What stood out to you? I suppose the artworks that stood out. And I can't remember the artist's name, but he did uh, Madonna in Elephant Dung. Yes, so yes, who... Chris, Chris Offaly, I think. Yeah. Obviously, like, you know, the Damien Hurst stuff, the, the, the mechanized bisection of the cow was very, very impressive. Yeah, well, that's that's an interesting point you bring up is even just the themes within the young British artists work. There's a lot of death and decay. You're really faced with your own mortality, I suppose, when you're looking at these artworks. But you have, you know, Hurst, he's got a good few that kind of touch on death you've got a thousand years in 1990 
of course, the physical impossibility of death in the mind of someone living <laughs> in 1991, which is the tiger shark um, in yes. the tank. And you have the pharmacy. And one of his, one thing that kind of crops up every now and again in his artworks is his insectocutor. He'll set up these tanks or his vitrines. And I think it's in a thousand years. It's a vitrine uh, split in two. And you've got all these little flies that hatch on one side. And there's a hole in the middle. So they fly from one side of the tank into the other because they can smell a dead cow head. And above them is the insecticutor. So Jeez. they come in looking for food and they're electrocuted pretty soon after. <laughs> and there is an, an insecticutor in pharmacy as well. And it's just so bizarre to kind of think that that would be made into art. But I suppose that's what's something that draws these YBAs together is their reliance on these found objects. So these really ordinary objects that aren't traditionally you know, seen in fine art. Yes. at the time again you've got you know tracy emin with her bed another found object there it's a complete rejection of any kind of fine art techniques and materials and subject matter for sure and it's all very shocking there is really no limits on what they'll do if we want to come back full circle both to 1990 and to that vogue cover it seems to me that when you get to sensation which is hugely successful transatlantically, that commerce had caught up with the underground by the late 90s very successfully. And that, that where you're describing earlier on there, that, that serious wrong footing, that, that grunge and that, that working class necessity of dressing had wrong footed the glamour of 1990, that, that once you get to sachi's cur- curation of sensation and his own very serious kind of profit that he made from it that 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 when it comes to art and fashion by the late 90s the market had very successfully sort of co-opted and re-established itself as um as predominant again so that 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 the period we're talking about from 86 to 94 the early 90s definitely was a time where a lot of commercial forces were very wrong-footed, but they proved to be highly resilient. But certainly, a lot of what we know of the 90s is very much present there in 1990, with, with one exception, and that is all the kids on Saved by the Bell, who, who just pretend like the 90s never happened. The 80s continued on, the 80s live on. Like, well, in, like I mean, at the point where Blossom and Six are going to see Pearl Jam in Blossom, they are still scrunching up the hair and wearing like ch- chinos and coloured shirts. Like, what's going on? There? I have no. I can't explain it. It's a phenomenon no. in itself. It it really is. It's the most. I mean, remarkable act of defiance in the face of reality. The people making Saved by the Bell, and I suspect very strongly that in uh, two episodes' time, Susie's going to have a lot to say about that. But yes, it. it 1990 it it seems to me as somewhere where you can really see the 1990s already beginning to to blossom and stand out yeah definitely it's yeah it's amazing to see it you know just in kind of a bird's eye view of everything that happened obviously i haven't covered everything that would have been a possible feat but just even like dipping in and out of it listen this has been an epic journey 
it has been superb and uh, especially you know for you you definitely have been a time traveler um because you're 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 seeing it not through rose-colored nostalgic eyes but through a a far more academic uh, and objective viewpoint than I have. Oh no, I remember when we were in the things. Marin, thank you so much. This has been brilliant and we will pick this conversation up again in at the end of the series and by then we'll have um, had a lot of feedback from our listeners. Thank you so much for this and uh, yeah, I'll see you in a few weeks. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I look forward to the next episode. And a big thanks to Marin for all of her amazing work and research going into that episode. And you will be lucky enough to hear from Marin at the end of the series when we all get together again. So for now, this is over to you. We want to hear from you, your opinions, your ideas. You can get in touch with us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter, all by using the handle at Zero's podcast. And as I said at the top of the episode, Zeros is spelt with an O-E-S at the end. So at Zeros podcast with an O-E-S at the end of Zeros. We're also on email at zerospodcast at gmail.com, zerospodcast at gmail.com. Please leave a review on whatever service you use to listen to this because it helps us to get our ratings boosted. And also, please, if you have enjoyed it, then share and recommend to other people who you think would enjoy it too. Now, simple rule when it comes to interacting with us on social media or by email, we expect and welcome robust criticism and feedback, especially when we've made mistakes. We are very, very welcoming of pedantry, of the most respectful and kind sort so please yes correct us when we're wrong but don't ever be abusive don't be trolling us if you've got nothing useful or constructive to say then don't bother because i will be deleting anything abusive or nasty more thanks that i have to give well first of all a big thank you to the composer of our theme tune tony wright aka verse chorus first a very dear old friend of mine And you can listen to all of his excellent work and buy it by going to versechorusverse.bandcamp.com. Versechorusverse.bandcamp.com. Please do go, and if you like Tony's work, buy it, because artists just are not getting paid on streaming services. So buy directly from the source there. We'd also like to thank our good friends Dave and Krister from the Pop Collaborate and Listen podcast. You will hear from them on our podcast later in this series, in the music episode. But Dave and Krister have been very supportive throughout our time developing this podcast idea to the point where you're now listening to it. Pop Collaborate and Listen is a fantastic podcast that I cannot recommend enough. Very, very much tied into what we're doing here. Um, a great inspiration for, for what we're doing here. Dave and Krista are reviewing every number one album of the 90s in order, starting with Phil Collins, but seriously. And it is a wonderful, insightful, hilarious podcast with lots and lots of episodes to enjoy. And I would actually recommend that you dip into that a good bit before episode four of our podcast the music episode just to get an idea of what they're doing and to get some sense of what music in 1990 was like before you hear me and connor talking about it so yes please pop collaborate and listen on whatever podcast platform you use next week we will have mick here 
to discuss the cinema of 1990 with me and I promise you that is going to be another cracking episode. I'm also hoping that before then I'm going to be releasing a special episode, a bonus episode, about the 1990 Tory Leadership Challenge. Yep, our first zero year uh, has proved to be extremely relevant to the moment that it is. So that is with author Alwyn Turner. That's me and Susie interviewing Alwyn Turner, mostly about his brilliant book, A Classless Society, about Britain in the 90s. Really, honestly, it was such a fantastic conversation, and I'm hoping to get that up by midweek next week. In the meantime, as I said, interact with us with anything you want to tell us, as long as it isn't nasty, and we will see you next week. Now that we're back to year zero The clock's don't work that way Forget everything that you know And start a brand new